Welcome to North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week and inspires you to know Christ intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Christ daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its timeless truth for living life God's way. Let's listen to Pastor Brandon as he brings us today's message. Listen, we've been going through a series this month on fear. What is good fear? What is bad fear? What is fear altogether? Uh, We talked last week about when fear is a good thing. Can fear be a good thing? Yeah, it can be. And we talked about the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? Well, we broke down the Hebrew word. We looked at the fear of the Lord and realized that when it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, it actually means the awe of the Lord, to be awestruck. Um, kind of give a, like, I think of the old time videos of when Elvis was on stage and all the girls are fainting on the front of the stage. They were just so awestruck you know, that they just would wilt, you know, it's kind of that idea behind this fear of God is that we stand before an almighty God and we are awestruck by him, that we are experiencing something that makes us fall to our knees and worship and praise, something that draws us into his presence, all right? This week we're talking about when fear is a bad thing. Can fear be a bad thing? Of course it can be. There are several different types of fears uh, in our culture today that drive us into dark places in our minds, in our hearts, or even through actions that are bad. We're going to be looking today at Proverbs chapter 29, verses 25 through 26. You can look there. Go ahead and start looking that up. I want to challenge you. If you don't know how to navigate a physical Bible, consider learning to find these books of the Bible and these verses of the Bible in your physical Bibles. If you have, some of you have your phones out, that's great, but it's always good to know. So where would I find Proverbs in my Bible? Well, if I go to the very center, usually I'll open up, if I can just divide it equally in half, I'll find Psalms. It's the book right after Psalms, okay? So you just go on through, how many chapters in the book of Psalms? There are 150 So once you get to Psalm 150, then you start the book of Proverbs. And we're in Proverbs 29, almost toward the end of the whole book of Proverbs, starting with verse 25 today. Before we get there, and as you're looking that up, I came across a story about Stalin. How many of you are familiar with Joseph Stalin, the Russian dictator? Uh, If you haven't been familiar with that as an adult or even as a high school student, I'm wondering what they're teaching in our schools. Joseph Stalin was, was the famed Russian dictator, communist dictator, uh, back when the, what, what we now know as Russia was the USSR. He was a very cruel dictator. Actually, some estimates of his genocide of his own people by starvation and execution, uh, numbers are anywhere from 15 million upwards of close to 30 million. We don't have accurate numbers because we don't know for sure, but it seems to be that that's what happened under his leadership. And how did he lead? He led from a place of fear. He led from a place of fear. At the death of Joseph Stalin, um, uh, there there was not much of a shifting of the tide, but there was a situation when he died Uh, or the day or the next few days after he died where he collapsed on a floor. And let me me give you the story behind this. The death of uh, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin is reputed to have been caused by a seizure suffered at a meeting of the Presidium, the Communist Party Executive Committee. Livid with fury, Stalin leapt from his seat only to crash to the floor unconscious while other Presidium members stared at the prone figure on the floor, a scheming bureaucrat by the name of Leverenti Berea jumped up and danced around the body, shouting, we are free at last, free at last. Pushing through the crowd, Stalin's daughter made her way into where the Presidium was, and she knelt down by her father's body. 
And as she's there holding his hand and talking to him, he rouses ever so slightly with an eye opening up and looking in her direction. At which point Berea then grabs the other hand of Stalin, it is purported, and begins to kiss it ever so gently, saying, <laughs> oh, are you okay? Are you okay? Hypocrisy. Here's what fear does. When we are fearful in a bad way, and I'm going to talk more about that in a moment, when we are fearful and we have a fear of man in our hearts, we do things that are uncharacteristic. We become hypocritical. We are one way in one situation and another way in another situation. Berea was living out this, this reality, so to speak, of the death of this dictator that had been so brutal on all the people that it held them in sway by his fear. And when he falls on the floor, he is just dancing and shouting with glee and happiness because, and everybody else wanted to do the same, I guarantee you. But he's living that out until he realizes, oh, maybe he's not dead because his eye's opening up. The truth of the matter is, we become hypocritical when we live in fear. We talk out of both sides of our mouth. Proverbs 29, 25 through 26 says, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version today. I thought that was the better translation, so let me, let me read that to you. If you want to look at it over the screen, you can. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that man gets justice. What is a snare? It's a trap, but it's not just any trap. Uh, and I hate to use the terminology due to the heightened awareness of stuff, but it literally is a, is a noose laid on the ground, okay? Like a trap. You see it in these uh, commercials or cartoons. Somebody steps in that circle, and then yank, it sets off a trap, and, it, and it, the slipknot comes, ties around the leg, and they're dangling from a branch in a tree, all right? That's typically the cartoon version of this. That's what a snare is. A snare is a hook or something that grabs and takes you into its control. What does he say? What does the writer of Proverbs tell us? The fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. That's what happens. It sucks you in and it will not let you go. How many of you ever struggle with human types of fear that have held you in their sway for a long time? How many of you struggle with different types of phobia? And, and one of the ways to overcome your phobias is to face your fears, to face your phobias, right? Fear of heights, what, what should you do? You should go skydiving, all right? Bungee jumping, or go to the top of the Empire State Building and look out over the edge of the, over the high horizons, right? There's this place in, in the Grand Canyon that has a glass walkway that arches out like a horseshoe over the deepest part of the canyon. You should walk out over that and just look straight down. I hear it's pretty cool. There are some places that have these, uh, you know, the, the glass features. Uh, they're more like monitors where you can walk out and it looks like the glass is cracking when you step on it. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to overcome your fear or make you more fearful. But the fear, of the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. It will hook you and not let you go. How do you shake the fears of man or the fears of this world? How many of you struggle with fear today based on COVID-19, based on the riots that are happening, or based on any number of things happening on a global or national or local scale today? I'm watching the news. I'm reading the papers. I'm getting to the age where I read the paper now. I'm watching all of this stuff and taking it in, and it is extremely depressing. And what I find ended up happening to me is I get sucked in to this panic mode when I read and inundate my mind with this kind of stuff, and I become fearful. I become grouchy. I become irritable. Why? Because I'm putting so much negativity in myself, which makes me fearful, which makes me paranoid, which polarizes me and says, well, that's wrong and this is right. And there, yes, there's a place and a time for right and wrong and all this stuff, but it sucks you into this to where it, it has this negative effect on you. 
causes your blood pressure to rise. It causes irritability. It causes any number of things. And the point I want to make this morning is this. The wise person does not fear people because they know that God is with them. If you have a fear of the Lord in your life, you cannot have a fear of man because what the fear of man does is it pushes out the fear of the Lord. They cannot live together. It's like water and oil. They do not mix well. You understand? So if you have the fear of the Lord in your life, you cannot have the fear of man. But what tends to happen is we allow the fear of man or the fears of the world to begin to push the fear of God out. How do I know that? Do you ever feel loving when you're fearful? It's kind of hard, isn't it? Because your fears tend to trump every other emotion. But John tells us in 1 John chapter 4 that perfect love does what? Casts out fear. It puts it aside. It pushes it away. And who is love? Well, actually, in that same book, and it's a really short letter in the New Testament, 1 John, John tells us that God is love. And he, if God is love and God is perfect, then perfect love does what? It drives out fear. What kind of fear? Not the fear of God, but the fear of man. And here, I want to give you a scene in Peter's life. So there are two scenes in Peter's life that I think really illustrate this idea of the fear of God versus the fear of man, as we highlight when fear is a bad thing. Peter, the apostle of Jesus, one of the 12 disciples, the one who Jesus said, come on out to me on the water, when Jesus was walking on the Sea of Galilee, if you remember, Jesus, uh, Peter steps out of the boat, and he begins to walk on the water until what happens? If you remember the story, the wind and the waves are crashing around the boat and around the feet of Peter, and when he takes his eyes off Jesus and looks at the wind and the waves, he gets scared. And when he gets fearful, the focus of Christ, his loving Savior, is not his focus anymore. Instead, his fears are the wind and the waves, and he probably begins to think, this is crazy. How can I walk on water? And why now am I sinking? And he sinks. And he begins to flail around in the water. And Jesus comes and reaches and grabs him and lifts him up. And he says, oh you, Peter of little faith, why do you doubt? Why do you doubt? Fear drives us to doubt. Fear drives us not in a healthy sense of questioning, but in a sense of questioning that draw, draws us away from God. Well, Jesus is constantly talking about, have faith, have faith. Oh, you of little faith, don't doubt me. Have faith. You, you can only please God, the writer of Hebrews says. You, can, you cannot please God except by faith. You see, the fears that we carry around in our lives today that cause so many panic attacks and every other issue in life they drive out a sensible knowledge of faith and understanding and a trust in God. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. When did Peter fall into the trap of fearing men more than fearing God? Well, we see him bumbling around when Jesus is on the scene. He's always sticking his foot in his mouth. He's always making mistakes. But then Jesus dies on a cross, raises from the grave, and even after his denial, Jesus restores Peter by the sea again after a night of fishing he says do you love me peter yes feed my sheep do you love me peter yes feed my sheep do you love me peter yes feed my sheep in john chapter 21 we get the restoration of peter and then we hear uh, just several days after the ascension of christ on the day of pentecost in acts chapter 2 something miraculous happens the holy spirit comes the one that was promised by jesus to be a helper and the holy spirit comes upon the disciples downtown in the upper room in Jerusalem where they celebrated the Passover meal with Jesus before he died, and something like flames, uh, tongues of fire rest over their heads. We aren't sure exactly what that is, but there's this mighty rushing wind and something like tongues of fire resting over each of the disciples' heads, and what happens? They hunker down, get scared, go into a barricade, and they pee themselves. That's how Acts chapter 2 actually reads. And if you think that I'm telling you the truth, 
that's not true. That was a lie. So here's what happens. So the Holy Spirit comes, a mighty rushing wind, a shaking of all the doors and windows, and tongues of fire rest over the disciples, and they pour out into the streets where just days before Jesus had been arrested and crucified. And with boldness, what does Peter do? He preaches. And he preaches a sermon probably a little bit longer than the ones I preach. I'm just going to say. We have it written out, but I'm sure he was really dragging the words out to make it longer. No, he preaches this, honestly, it's a hellfire brimstone sermon. Because it really goes on the offensive against those who had persecuted the believers and put Jesus to death. And he does this, and what happens? There's not a riot that rises up. Instead, people are broken because they realize, who are these guys that can speak in our language? Because it is now the festival of Pentecost. People from various different regions around the area that speak various different languages are now hearing these Galileans speaking in their own language, and some people thought, oh, they're drunk. I've never seen somebody get drunk and speak in a different language that never knew it before. I've seen them babble on, but I've never seen them get smarter. Okay? This is what happens when people grasp at straws to try to explain the unexplainable or the supernatural. Here's what happened. He preaches... All the people in the area hear in their native tongue the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guess how many were added to the church that day? And it wasn't a building. They didn't have church buildings in that day. The church was the people of God, called by His name, living by the power of the Holy Spirit and following the guidance thereof. 3,000 were added that day to the body of Christ. Oh, to be there on that day. To not have any fear, but rather have a boldness and a courage and a holy reverence and awe of the Almighty God that says, I don't care if somebody crucifies me, I have to speak the truth in love because it's worth it to me to die a martyr for what I believe in than it is to die a liar for what I don't. So this has happened. Peter continues, Jesus is dead, raised from the grave, ascends to heaven. Uh, The day of Pentecost has come and gone. But then later on, we get this story of Peter who becomes sheepish. It's Peter in Antioch. And Paul tells us this story about Peter in Antioch where he confronted him. In uh, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. He confronts Peter because of Peter's hypocrisy and because of Peter's fear. Let me read you that real quickly this morning. When Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Let me stop right there because that is a pretty powerful sentence. (laughs) Have you ever opposed somebody to their face before? I'm not saying you should get up in somebody's face and start strutting and doing the, you know, head bobble thing or whatever you call it or the snapping. Of, ah, you know what I'm talking about. You shouldn't do that. That's not what he's talking about. He says, I opposed him to his face. I, I didn't go behind his back and tell other people I thought he was wrong. I went straight to Peter is what he's saying. And I looked him in the eyes and I said, you're wrong, brother. You're doing this wrong. Well, what was he doing wrong? Well, let's read on. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. What's he talking about? Go back to Acts chapter 15. We read about the first church council. What was the first church council? The first council meeting of the church. The first committee, the first board meeting of the church we have in Scripture. Acts chapter 15, it was on how to handle Gentile Christians who were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Because the Jews had a certain set of laws and rules based on Old Testament requirements that you had to follow. Dietary laws, you can't eat pork or shellfish or snake. I love me some good snake. You know, you can't eat any of that kind of stuff. And so now the Jewish believers in Christ, a certain group of them called the Judaizers, you can find that in some of your versions of Scripture, were beginning to impose the dietary laws on these new Christians. 
these new Gentile Christians. And also circumcision laws. What is circumcision? I love talking to sixth and seventh grade about circumcision. And I make sure that their parents know, listen, we're studying the Old and New Testament and we're gonna be talking about circumcision, so you probably should let them know. Well, I know we have young kids in here, but it has to do with the private regions of boys and you can look that up and figure that out. Circumcision was continuing to be perpetuated as a rule for Gentile Christians coming to Christ. Now imagine many of these Gentile Christians come to Christ were men of older age, okay? Not babies, just eight days old, which was Jewish custom, okay? So in Acts chapter 15, the first council of the church, what they came down and erred on the side of, James being the head of that, James who wrote the book of James in the New Testament was also the half-brother of Jesus because they shared a mother but not the same father. Who was Jesus' father? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit through the power of God when, when Mary was a virgin. But guess what? Joseph and Mary went on to have more children. Jude, the book of Jude, which is one chapter, Jude was a half-brother of Jesus, and so was James. So James is now the head of the church in Jerusalem. And I, I go back to this. This is a great defense of the faith. What would it take for your half-brother to convince you he was God? Because we know James comes to belief and begins to be the head of the church in Jerusalem. All right? What was it? It was the resurrection of Jesus that caused him to believe. But I digress. So the church council basically states we should not impose all of these strict rules, laws, and regulations on the Gentile Christians who are coming to faith. They don't need to get circumcised. They don't need to worry about the dietary laws. Instead, we have this new covenant in Christ Jesus that has sealed the deal on the old covenant and now we live under the blood of jesus christ read it for yourselves and they basically come out and say we shouldn't make it hard for the gentile christians who are coming to jesus okay that was going on peter has this vision from god of this sheet being let down from heaven and guess what's inside of that sheet a lot of unclean animals and it's let down, and, and Peter says, uh, here's the voice that says, get up and eat, Peter. And he says, oh, Lord, not me. I can't do that. They're unclean animals. Never done that before. And this voice from heaven, which we know to be God, says, don't call unclean what God has made clean. We already have a shifting of the tide in the New Testament with the dietary laws. But when the, when the group comes from Jerusalem under the authority of James, he knows that he probably should kind of spruce himself up. You know, the big chief is coming in from, from a corporate headquarters. So what do we do? We clean everything up. Has, has that ever happened in your workplace? Right? The, 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 the big boss is coming in and the board will be in today. We need to make sure everything is perfect and spotless. It goes on to say, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was what? Afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that their hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Who's Barnabas? We've heard about him before. Well, he was actually the partner in ministry to Paul. Paul and Barnabas. It was Paul and Silas. It's Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas was kind of Paul's right-hand man. He says, even my right-hand man was led astray by Peter. What did fear drive Peter to do? It drove him to treat people discriminately. What does fear cause in our country today? It causes racism. It causes all sorts of phobias and mental illnesses. Fear causes us to retract from situations when we should be stepping into them to clearly rectify situations. It causes us, us to withdraw. You see, I've been talking this month about what fear, a bad fear is. Fear, a bad fear draws us away. You know what the enemy does as a tool? He, he loves to separate us, because if he can get us alone or get us lost in our own thought processes and talking down about ourselves and reminding us of all of our fears, what has he done? He's gotten us trapped, a snare. 
and we're trapped by those fears. He's alienated us from those who who could walk with us through some of those things, especially God. And we lack a trust in God when we have a fear of man. We don't trust God because if we trusted God, we wouldn't fear man. Do you see how these are diametrically opposed? Ryan Higginbotham, in an article entitled The Fear of Man Will Crush You, writes, we can trace our fears to the people who have the most authority over us. Let me say that again. We can trace our fears to the people who have the most authority over us, or I would say the things that have the most authority over us. This is the person or the thing whose approval we want the most. Whose approval do you want the most? You would hope it would be Christ. But is that how you live your life? Think about it. We want approval. Most of us do. Most of us, well, there are a handful of us that I don't care what people think, but deep down, I think you're lying. Okay? (laughs) Just saying. Because I think we all have a level of needing or desiring a certain level of approval and acceptance. Okay? I could be wrong. I'm not a scientist, nor a medical doctor, or nor a psychologist. But the truth of the matter is, we all struggle with a certain level of insecurities. We talked, uh, I talked a little bit briefly in two sermons ago about some of the symptoms of fear. Let me give you some more. Giving in to peer pressure is a symptom of fear. Why is that a symptom of fear? Because social pressure by one's peers to conform to a set of beliefs or actions in order to be accepted is not a healthy thing. I don't know what, this is, this is why parents oftentimes say to their kids, don't want you to get messed up with that group. And you're like, oh, come on, what's a big deal? We've always had a rule in our house with our kids. You can hang out with whomever you want, but when their behavior begins to rub off on you in a bad way, that's when we step in and say no. Right? If you are the influencer, that's one thing. But if you are being influenced, not going to happen. We want them to be light and salt into the world. We want them to be able to share the love of Christ with all people. We don't want to cocoon our kids off from society. We want them to step into society as believers in Christ and show the love of Christ wherever they go. The problem lies, and it's not just with kids, but with any of us, when we start to be conformed to the world rather than be transformed by the renewing of our minds through Jesus Christ. When you become conformed to the world is when you fear the world and what the world has against you. What about overcommitment? That's another response to fear, worldly fear. Overcommitment. Why do we overcommit? We maybe will wait, well, I've got a good work ethic. Well, you can abuse that work ethic and become a workaholic and actually damage yourself and other people you love and know very well. Overcommitment is not a great work ethic thing. It is actually a silly notion that the enemy uses to drive you to your grave earlier, that alienates you from healthy relationships. Okay? Because we oftentimes try to seek people's approval by overcommitting. I'm going to make more people happy. You know, the boss is just really riding me. I'm going to do this, this, and this. You need to draw the line. Well, you know I can't because I'll get fired. Well, There's got to be something reasonable. There's got to be something reasonable and a healthy balance to life. I digress. You can argue with me about that later. Lying is a result of fear. Lying, even little white lies, are partial truths. Telling only a part of the truth, but not the whole truth. That's why in the courtroom they say, do you swear to tell the truth? The whole truth, and because they know people are prone to lie, especially when being pressured and under, the, under the, uh, the, this, this fear of being persecuted or prosecuted, right? This is why in Jesus' day and in the early first century church, there were those that would turn away from Christ because they feared man more than they feared God. When Jesus would draw a line in the sand to test their commitment of whether or not they would follow him or not, many of them turned and went back home because it was too much for them to bite off and chew what he was saying. But see, the truth of the matter is the only way to true freedom is through him. You want to continue in this facade of freedom that you think you have by doing whatever you want with whomever you want, wherever you want, you will actually find yourself in more bondage than you realize. 
See, the enemy has a great way of deceiving us into believing that when we make our own choices devoid of any consequences, because we need to be able to do what, what we want, when we want, he deceives us into believing a lie, just like he did with Eve and Adam and the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Say, oh, no, 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 it's really not that bad. Go ahead and do it. And then you find yourself reaping the, the consequences of what you've sown by doing things you shouldn't have done, all because you believed you would be freer if you could make your own choices and decisions devoid of a moral reality we call God. What about jealousy? It's another thing that comes from fear. Jealousy, I've seen this a lot especially in the ministry, working with couples, where one spouse or one boyfriend or girlfriend or, or fiancé is jealous of another because they don't trust the other person. When there is no trust in a relationship, there is no relationship. Let me just say that. When you don't trust God, the relationship falters. That's why God is, you are my all in all. We just sing that while I go, you aren't my sort of, sometimes, maybe. You, you aren't my uh, today, yes, but tomorrow I've got to go back to work. Uh, you, you know what? You are my all in all. Uh, you are my all in all in my marriage. You are my all in all in my parenting. You are my all in all as a child who still lives with their parents. You are my all in all in my job. You are my all in all in the grocery store behind the wheel of the car when somebody cuts me off. You are my all in all at all times and all places. You are my sometimes, someplace. Avoidance is another way we live out fear. The fear of man. To steer clear of or to prevent something from happening. Sometimes that's a good thing to prevent something from happening. But all too often we prevent a lot of things from happening that should happen that God has ordained. And we step in and try to make things better when God says, that's not what I was trying to do. That's not what I was trying to accomplish. And you just messed it up. But guess what? I'm still God and I'm able to, able to bring something good out of your bad situation. All right? That's the merciful love and grace of God. What about the need for acceptance? I kind of talked about that with the need for approval. Desiring favorable reception from others and willing to do what it takes to receive it. I will do whatever it takes to be accepted into the group. Yeah, we, we see this uh, during rush week at, at colleges, right? Freshmen come in, they want to be accepted into a fraternity or a sorority, and they, they have what's called, pardon the French, hell week, where they put the, the, these freshmen to the test to see if they're going to... And sometimes it gets so ludicrous that it's dangerous and can really harm somebody. I've seen it. it it's really, really bad. It's really nasty. It can get very ugly. But what are, we, what are we willing to do to be accepted by the groups we desire to be in? See, the question mark is, if it, if it drives you to a place where you would have to sacrifice your morals and your, 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 ethic, your ethics, is it really worth it? Is, if it's calling you to compromise who you are at the core of who you are and who God created you to be, is it really worth it? What about the need for control? It's another fear that we have. The need for control. This one's a tough one. There are some of you out there, and I'm not going to point fingers because guess what? I struggle with this too. There are some of us out there that struggle with control. We are control freaks. We have to control every single thing in every aspect of our lives. And then we also want to control other people's lives. You ever done that? <laughs> Now, we think we're doing the right thing in being over-controlling, but oftentimes we are more damaging in the process. As a pastor, I oftentimes see things that other people don't see when they come and talk to me. And, and you could show and illuminate and enlighten people to certain things that you see from your perspective to try to bring some truth to the scenario, but I can't force people to accept what I have to offer, what I have to say. Even if I point them to the truth of the Word of God, which is oftentimes what I do in those situations, and point out where this doesn't measure up to that, 
I still can't control whether or not they take it or accept what I have to say. That is one of the most painful and difficult things as a pastor and as a spiritual leader is not thinking I know it all, but saying here's what I do know based on experience and training and understanding, and this is what's going to cause the most havoc and wreak the most havoc in your life, and it will cause a ripple effect of devastation if you don't change or get this thing right in your life. I want to control that, but I can't. How many of you guys try to control things that are out of your control? And then when things start to get out of control, you go crazy. You get depressed. You get frustrated. Could you control this pandemic? No. No matter how hard we try, it cannot be controlled. We could try to flatten the curve, but guess what? Coronavirus is going to be around. That's the nature of viruses. They live and they mutate, and they become a different strain. They live, and I'm probably freaking you out. This is actually a devil's advocate thing I'm doing right now. Here's the truth of the matter. The Spanish flu was around in the early 1900s, and the influenza A and B are derivatives or strains of that that existed over 100 years ago. I mean, here's the, here's the reality. We live where there's disease and death and all of that in the world. And we could live under the fear of all of these different health issues to the point that it drives us to the grave. Or we can understand that we all will ultimately someday die. Right? That sounds super depressing and morbid. But it's true. We will all someday die. I'm just glad I don't know when my last day is. You guys might want, believe differently. I would love to know the last day. I'd love to be able to control how I leave this world. That's why some people take the suicide route. Because they're fearful of not having the control they want or desire over their lives. And fear traps them in this place of desperation. And when fear traps you in desperation and you feel like everything else in your life is out of control, the only control you think you can have is killing yourself. The enemy is won over you by getting you to a place where you are that desperate. I've had to do suicide funerals before. It is one of the most painful type of service I've ever had to do. Because the question is, well, did they go to heaven? Did they go to hell? I don't know. It's not for me to judge. I don't know that. We can hold out hope that God in his grace and mercy was able to do something amazing in those last few moments of that insane act of suicide. But I don't know. But what I do know is we need to trust God now. No matter the circumstance or situation. Need to always be right. That's the last one for a move on to the next point, and we'll close out. The need to always be right is driven by a fear of humans and a worldly fear. The need to always be right, the unwillingness of a person to admit when they're wrong and their willingness to win at all costs. Do you know anybody like that? Are you like that? I will do whatever I have to do to succeed, and if somebody calls me out on something, I'm still not going to own up to it. I'm not going to admit to it because I believe I'm right and you're wrong. They're the most stubborn people out there. Hey, listen, my wife and I are super stubborn. If she was here today, she would tell you, uh, yeah, I'm stubborn and Brandon's stubborn, and that's been probably the biggest part of our argumentation in these 21 years of marriage is she's right and I'm right, but sometimes in situations we both can't be right, or can we? Well, we like to fight as if we both are right, and we will, we will do it vehemently, all right? But there are situations where when we're pointed out that we're wrong, the person of humility who is not prideful, is able to say, you know what, you're right, I'm wrong. And not like this, oh, yeah, you're right, you're always right. You ever done that? Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, and I've done that too, because in my, even when I know I'm wrong, my pride gets the best of me. Some This is Brandon being transparent right now. I will say, oh, yeah, you're always right, and I'll roll my eyes, even though I know I'm wrong, because I'm still trying to win! And then I have to repent and ask God not to count that against me, you know, all that stuff. And then I go back to my wife and I honestly say, listen, you were right, I was wrong, will you forgive me? And sometimes she says, well, how was I right? <laughs> and then I have to articulate the details and it just gets really muddy. All right, scene number two, Jerusalem. And let me, let me close with this. Peter, the day of Pentecost, 
just a few days after that, he is continuing to preach. Guess what he and the Apostle John do? I read from 1 John. The Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John in 1 John. Well, Peter and John are now coming to the temple courts because what they would do daily is go to the temple courts to worship and to pray. And so now in Acts chapter 4, they have come to the temple courts, uh, actually in Acts chapter 3, and there's been a lame beggar there. Not like, oh, he's so lame. It's not that kind of lame. It's the kind of lame where he can't walk. He's not been able to walk for decades. He's in his mid-40s, and he's begging God, or begging God, he's begging people for alms. Give me some coins, give me some coins. So Peter and John are coming into the temple to pray and to worship together, and, and, and they see this guy, and he's begging, and he says, you know what, we don't have money, Peter says, but what we do have we'll give you. Get up, take your mat, and walk. How bold do you have to be to do that? How trusting of God do you have to be to do that? Would you have that kind of fear in God and the trust of God to believe that you could go out and tell somebody, take your mat and walk, that had never walked? Oh, Brandon, that died off in the early first century. That Miracles don't happen anymore. Oh, fooey. Yeah, they happen. They happen on a daily basis. We just are blind to it. You see, if we had the eyes to see, the ears to hear what God wants to show us, we would see miracles happening all the time. Except the enemy is a great confuser who sucks us into his trap and his snare of seeing things he wants us to see. And it's so subtle that he gets our attention off of Christ and onto the wind and waves that are crashing around our feet. But in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John continue to preach. Now they're preaching in the temple courts after they've healed this man. And this is where we find Peter and John in Acts 4, starting with verse 12. Listen to what happens. Salvation is found in no one else, Peter says, for there is no under name other, under heaven which, men, uh, which given to men by which we must be saved. He's talking about Jesus. That is a bold statement in and of itself. There is no other way to, to be saved except through Jesus Christ. Well, Brandon, that's very exclusive and it's hate speech and you shouldn't be saying that. Oh, it! There has got to be a hard line of truth. Truth is not a fuzzy line. Truth is truth. Falsehood is falsehood. And Jesus is the defining factor because he was the way, the truth, and the life. And so here's the deal. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And then he goes on. When they saw, it goes on, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled. These guys are dumb. They got their teeth backed out and all that stuff and they're preaching the name of Jesus out there. Sorry, I'm reverting back to my Kentucky days. These, I love Kentucky. It's my old Kentucky home. Anywho, they notice they aren't elite like us. We've got our schooling and degrees. How do they do this? And so you have... Peter and John, who were unschooled, they didn't have the doctorate degrees in theology. And they're saying, how is it these unschooled men are teaching and preaching with this kind of authority and boldness? These are ordinary men. They were so astonished that they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Oh, these guys, that's right, I remember seeing them with Jesus. But since they could see... Uh, Excuse me, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. They have the truth of a miracle standing right beside Peter and John. The lame man that even those religious leaders had seen for decades as they come in and out and probably threw him a coin now and then. He had just become a fixture by the gate, but he wasn't a fixture to God. And he wasn't a fixture to Peter or John who had been transformed by Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit because they saw every bit of humanity in every one they were standing in front of because they were children of God who saw others as people to be loved, not to be hated. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then they, oh, they, they pulled them in they ordered them to be withdrawn from the Sanhedrin, which is the Supreme Court of the Jewish Council. Verse 16, what are we going to do with these men? So they begin to confer among themselves without Peter and John being there. What are we going to do? They've gathered a pretty big following. They've just healed a guy. We can't do this. It's a big, big political move. 
They had the popularity of the people. Who is the one that's fearing right now? The religious leaders are fearing. What do you think they fear? What are we going to do with these men, they ask. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from happening and spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer in the name of Jesus. And guess what happens? They call Peter and John back in after they've had a chance to confer together. And the only recourse they have is to look Peter and John in the eye and say, Stop preaching about Jesus! Stop it! Or you're going to force us to have to do something else. Don't make me come in there. Right? Sorry. Verse 18. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But listen to this reply. It is not arrogant, it's not pompous, it's not prideful, it's just speaking the truth in love. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. They are basically saying, listen, we hear what you're saying, but we're not going to obey what you're telling us to do. We have seen it. We have heard it. We know what happened. We were there. We were eyewitnesses. We know how we've been changed from simple fishermen into men of faith who trust God with everything in us, with our all in all, and we're not turning back. So, listen, I would rather be, I'd rather God be the judge as to whether or not you're right or we're right, but we still have to speak the truth. Church, let me close with this. Are you speaking the truth in love? Church, it's time to rise up. It's not time to be arrogant or pompous or polarizing. It is time to be life-giving, humble servants of Jesus Christ who stand in the highways and byways instead of cocooning ourselves off behind the four walls of a building that could be burned tomorrow. The church is the church no matter where we are, no matter what we do, if it's in Christ's name in a way that brings Him glory, then the important thing is that we are being the hands of freedom. Who cares what people can do to us? Throw me in jail just because I'm not towing this politically correct line. Okay, Judge for yourself whether it's right or wrong for me to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in every facet and in every way. You may not like what it says. I don't always like what it says, but I trust it and I know it to be true because it's been tried to true in my own life. And so here's the truth of the matter. Church, if we want to see our nation change, if you want to see racism squelched, if you want to see riots put to rest, it's not about voting for the right candidate. It's about the church rising up and being the church. I know it's a political year. And you probably, listen, in my 20 years of ministry, I've had people say, you need to be preaching for this or for that. And for that. I'm like, really? When did God tell you to tell me what to preach? And listen, I'm not, I will take into consideration what anybody wants to tell me. I have an open-door policy. Let's talk it out. But I'll be honest with you. When it comes to preaching, I pray through that. I spend hours meditating on the Word, and I look and see, God, is this really what you want? I don't want to preach on this passage. There are ones that I would rather leave to somebody else to preach. That's why I force myself to preach through books of the Bible so that I don't handle it in a way without integrity. And honestly, church, as our worship team comes forward, where do you stand today? What fear drives you? Is it a fear of man that's held you in its sway and trapped you like a snare? Or is it the fear of God that compels you into the highways and byways with a message of truth and love? You have not been called to be a judge. Don't you play into this stupid political game that the enemy wants you to play into. 
Do you hear me? You have been called to rise above it, to be a person above reproach. You have not called to play the political game. Jesus didn't play it. When he was tried to be sucked into this conversation about politics and polarizing issues, he raised the conversation to a heavenly plane. And he changed the direction of the conversation so that he could help people see it's not this, nor is it this. It's this. When you, got, when you get sucked in to playing this stupid, polarizing political game on Facebook, on Twitter, or any other social media platform, you have sucked yourself, you've been sucked in to the enemy's game. Stop it. Be the church. Be the church of God today. Stand firm in faith. Do not waver. Stay focused on him. I promise you, you can walk on the water. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we know that living in this world is not easy. But those of us that live in this world that have surrendered our lives to you, that follow Jesus Christ and allow him to be Lord of our lives, know that living in the fear of God is something that compels us to go, to be bold, not arrogant, but to stand in confidence knowing that you are there with us. Even when the right or the left hate us, we know that you love us unconditionally. You've called us to be voices of truth in a dark world. You've called us to be light in the darkness. You've called us to be salt, to flavor and purify the conversations we are a part of, to direct people to focus on you. Help us to be people who lead others to this place of salvation in whose name there is no salvation but Jesus Christ. Forgive us of our sins. Forgive us where we've played the part that the world has called us to play instead of playing the part you've designed and purposed for us to be. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website at www.northmaincog.org where you can learn more about us. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. And if you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that'd be helpful too. If you'd like to donate to the ongoing ministry of North Main, go to www.northmaincog.org and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Again, thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.